Chapter 15 I went to hear the Seattle Symphony. I couldn't help wondering why it was that we could all meet and be lifted up by the music. Well, had it been a picture exhibit, we'd have had no shared sympathy at all. Has music something art lacks? Is the eye more earthly than the ear? Emily Carr, journal entry, February 4th, 1930. Would you like me to buy you a new motorcycle? Babette asks. I frown and glance outside through the open kitchen window. Late summer breezes waft around us, heavy with the dense aroma of freshly mown grass. Dark shadows cut sharply across the sundial. That's very generous, but the bus gets me around okay these days. My professor blinks. Please understand, it means much having live-in help. I really can't ask for more. It'd be tough attending school full-time and also working to pay rent elsewhere. My space in your pantry is enough. Babette smiles. Then we are useful for one another. A symbiosis. However, this coming autumn I shall require more of you. The college tours resume in September and become more difficult each year. Sadly, my health isn't what it was. Can't you retire? After working so long for the college, they must have some kind of pension. Oh no, students are my life. Should I stay at home all day and rot before the television like every other person my age? Never speak of such a thing to me. While blood still courses through my veins, I shall play the game. As green neighborhood leaves change to orange and carpet Eastmoreland yards, I sign up for a full load of classes at Portland Community College. Nearly every Saturday morning, we drive to the Sylvania campus, where a large touring bus waits in the parking lot. I accept cash as student's board, marking each one off a master list. Once underway, my professor takes command and lectures through an intercom, firing off fusillades of facts and narratives. No locations from the Oregon coast to central mountain ranges evade her treatment, beginning with local geology, next informing us about regional native tribes or stinging barbs from correspondence between feuding Hudson Bay Company officials. Before long, she casually inserts a sexually explicit anecdote or two, smirking as waves of laughter rock through the bus. It's the Babette show on wheels, and no matter how tired she seems at the beginning, her face glows with joy the entire time. Tours completely exhaust me, she comments, after completing the first several. But you see, they are the only way I can keep working. The college would love to cancel all my classes and hire some young teacher at a third the salary, but they make a great profit from these weekend trips. I arrange the bus, make all other accommodations, and collect fees to cover the rental, and so forth. Students must write a brief paper afterward, for which they receive one credit. The school's cost is only my few hours' wages, but they make back whatever college credit is now times 40. Once, my supervisor suggested I make a tape recording of these lectures. Can you imagine that? And make it easier for them to replace me? I said absolutely not. On a Sunday evening in early October, my professor winds the clocks before bed. I watch her pull the chains, then push each pendulum until they tick away again. She smiles with satisfaction, then turns. So, Ross, next weekend I would appreciate if you accompanied me on an overnight trip to Yakima. I always buy season tickets for the symphony. There's a symphony in Yakima? I ask. Will we have to sit on bales of hay? The central Washington city brings to mind apple orchards, but not black tie events. <laughs> no, Babette sniffs, indignant. 
They have one of the best orchestras in the country, and their symphony hall is world class. My French relatives scoffed as well before I took them years ago, but you will see. She rubs her neck with agitation. The twin punctures now erupt from her skin like angry volcanoes. Are you okay? I ask. Those don't look good. Babette sighs. My doctor says these lesions have become cancerous. I made an appointment for their removal soon. Wasp stings? Turning into tumors? How odd. Your doctor said that? Her eyes narrow. As soon as you finish medical school, rest assured I will happily consult you about personal health matters. Early next Saturday, we drive east through a rainstorm that pounds along the Columbia Gorge. Water streaks down the windows, though Babette still attempts identifying physical geography, where the river long ago exposed layered sediment. My professor mutters irritably, but as we approach the turnoff for Highway 97 that leads north into Washington, she cheers. Oh, we must pause in Biggs Junction for lunch. They know me there and never charge my meals when I bring tours through. We pull into the parking lot of a small truck stop, hurry inside, and are seated in the diner. Babette takes off her thick glasses and wipes away water droplets with a napkin. A middle-aged waitress with brown curly hair sets down mugs of coffee at a nearby table and turns in our direction. Dr. Ellsworth? She cries out. Just one student today? What, do you give private tours now? My professor grins affably as the waitress leans across the table to squeeze her shoulder. Oh no, we are just on our way to Yakima this afternoon, but I will stop by with a full group next week, and then again in mid-November. Another woman bustles out of the kitchen to hug her and inquire about upcoming trips. Babette glows and basks under their attention. I can't tell you how much I enjoy these young ladies, she confides after they take our orders for sandwiches. Since I am not close with my family, it is important to maintain connections with people through other ways. Your relatives in France adore you, I point out. Babette waves a careless arm in dismissal. The French cousins call often enough, it is true, and we enjoy our occasional visits, but that is not authentic human contact. My real family are my students. You know, I really think I would die without them. I have no worse fear than being dismissed from the college. It may seem ridiculous at your age, but imagine your entire peer group is only interested in their declining health or absurd television programs. You are fortunate to possess such a caring family. Both your parents phone at 9pm sharp every Sunday night. I've never seen such consistency. I laugh. <laughs> yes, they've called every week at that time since I moved out when I was 18. We could wind the clocks by it. They seem very fond of you, she replies. And I can understand why. It has only been a few months we have lived together, but I must say, you wear very well. Thank you. I smile and look away. Overhead, the rain beats down with a muted rumble, audible over clattering dishes and country music on the jukebox. So, Babette continues with a curt nod. Once we cross the Columbia Bridge into Washington, we pass near a full-scale recreation of Stonehenge, as it would have appeared when new. The structure was built by a wealthy man named Sam Hill in 1918 as a memorial to U.S. soldiers who died in World War I. A very odd place. There isn't time today, but we will visit during my high desert tour this autumn.
Hill was a Quaker, and it may seem strange a religious American man would take pains emulating a monument sacred to pagans in ancient England. He believed Stonehenge existed as a site of prehistoric savagery and human sacrifice. There is no evidence such things ever occurred. It was an astronomical observatory, a religious center, as I understand. At any rate, Hill, quite horrified by assembly line slaughter in Europe, thought he could warn humanity against the warlike inclinations through resurrection of an alleged barbaric temple. I appreciate his motives, though the results are questionable. Images of a man being tortured to death in every cathedral never kept Europeans from slaughtering each other with great enthusiasm, so it is unclear what effect a much more opaque symbol in the middle of nowhere would have on Americans. Still, it adds local color. After lunch, we continue toward Yakima, arrive by mid-afternoon, and check into a Howard Johnson Hotel. I carry our luggage inside to a comfortable ground-floor room with two beds. Through a sliding glass door, puddles of water in the large courtyard reflect dark clouds. A medium-sized pool is already covered over for winter. I always stay here because we are so near the hot tub. Babette points outside where a boxy shape emits small jets of steam, only 20 yards away. Nice. Too bad I didn't know where I'd have brought my swimsuit. My professor shrugs. No matter. Very few guests stay here during the cold season. We should use it directly and then prepare for dinner and tonight's events. The chill is terrible outside. Would you go prepare that boiling machine? I strip down to boxer shorts and traverse the frigid concrete barefoot, a thin towel draped over my shoulder. The cover comes off with a pop of suction as chlorine vapor rises. I shiver and yelp as my toes dip into an icy puddle. The digital temperature gauge reads 101 degrees. Carefully ascending slick wooden steps, I splash both feet into the water. Millimeter by millimeter, I sink down until only my head protrudes above the surface. Through a veil of hot mist, I see the sliding door open, and Babette boldly steps out. She wears only pink panties and her wig. A terracloth towel is draped over one arm. My professor reaches the tub and without hesitation slips beneath the surface. Her thick glasses immediately fog over. I smell pungent lavender skin cream. Is this as hot as you can make it? She questions me. I'm not sure. My fingernails have almost scalded away. Babette snorts. Ha, it's scarcely above body temperature. Some happy day I will have one of these put in the backyard. She pushes buttons mounted on the side and underwater jets kick in. Liquid heat flows around my ankles. I frown at her exposed neck. The twin lesions swell and glisten. Now, she continues, as bubbles explode between her full bosom. Tonight we are in for a sheer delight. Young people from the Seattle Opera will perform a variety of splendid pieces. Selections from Strauss, Mozart, and Wagner, plus a few others. You know, there is actually quite a rivalry between the two cities. Some time ago, the Seattle Symphony came as guests, but had the audacity to bring their own chairs. Many in the community took that as quite a snub. Before the show, there is a preview and discussion period, which I always attend. You will hear all kinds of worthwhile information about upcoming concerts and get a chance to rub elbows with people who really matter in Yakima. It is a small town, but the wealthy have created something truly special for themselves. The Capitol Theater, a world-class concert hall in the middle of Washington. It is only a few blocks away. We can easily walk. Oh, soon you will see. Say you are excited.
I am. I am excited. My face breaks into a smile. Her enthusiasm can't be denied or cooled, even by the frigid air rushing around our exposed heads. After dinner together in the hotel restaurant, we dress for the evening. I button up a black mechanic shirt over camouflage army surplus pants. Babette chooses a green skirt and a heavy purple sweater after generously applying Chanel No. 5 perfume. She wraps a long red scarf around her scented neck. Are my colors appropriate? She asks. They're fine. What about me? Am I presentable for a night on the town? You'll do. Outside our hotel, a crowd of well-dressed Hispanic young people mill about, posing for photographs in suits and colorful gowns. Babette grabs the elbow of one man and questions him in fluent Spanish. He answers her questions agreeably as goosebumps rise on the shoulders of a pretty girl clutching his other arm. At last, my professor breaks off their conversation and we continue down the sidewalk. The reason we have a marvelous symphony here is, of course, the agricultural system which allows members of the richest class to subsidize their passions. Such beauty always bears human costs. In this case, it is migrant workers who come and labor for comparatively little in return. But so it goes. Look at the magnificent palace of Versailles. Thousands of people died in its construction, though you will see scant mention of them there. Centuries later, the grand buildings stand as monuments to long-gone royalty. But really, they are colossal tombs, even if no one recognizes it. Oh, please stop a moment. Let me gather strength. I pause as my professor leans against a brick building. She takes deep breaths and after several moments, shudders. Are you okay to keep going? Babette sighs. Yes, my energy disappeared with no warning at all. But we must go on. Help me a little, please. She leans on me for another half block before we turn down a dark alley, passing rows of locked dumpsters. She motions at an unmarked metal door in the wall. I pull it open. Bright light spills through, harsh enough to make me blink. I am tugged into a warm crush of crystal and red carpeting. Women in long, elegant dresses move by. A cluster of people glance our way as cold wind from our entrance blows past. The door clicks shut. This is a little shortcut, Babette explains. Come, I will show you the main chamber. We cross the expansive room and arrive at another door. This leads down a small hallway and suddenly we emerge. I halt in amazement. The ceiling stretches far above us in elegant arcs of pink and white. Gold filigree accents every angle. It glows with illumination from recessed lights. Deep crimson curtains drape the walls around a sea of red upholstery. The atmosphere billows with strings and woodwinds as orchestra members tune their instruments. I turn around and around the grandeur a whirl on every side. It's just wonderful. Babette's teeth flash in a grin. So you see, sometimes I can be worth listening to. Now, we will sit down this row here, about halfway to the front, and several seats in from the aisle. I tell you, over years I have tried every section and discovered the best acoustics. But let us go downstairs and see if the pre-show lecture is ready. We wend our way down to a lower-level room where about fifteen dapper elderly people recline in chairs before an empty podium. Many turn and nod at my professor. She directs me to sit, then makes rounds among the attendees, arms wide in gestures as they talk and anticipate their evening's performance. Her bulky figure bounds gleefully. 
She is unrecognizable as the woman I half carried from our hotel. After several minutes, Babette returns and collapses into the chair beside me. You know, Ross, I have said before it is preferable living as a big fish in a small pond, but really, Yakima is my second pond. Lately, this is more difficult, but I try to stay connected with people who matter in Washington. Those ones I spoke with just now come from the real agricultural gentry out here. They were quite pleased I brought you, as I told them my grandson clearly needed a dose of high culture. Her mouth twists in an impish grin. I glower back. Besides the classical music community, I am also a member of the Yakima Historical Society. Perhaps we will visit their museum some other time. But wait, the conductor is here. Shush, shush, you are always talking too much. After the conductor's lecture, we return upstairs and find our seats. Babette takes one on my left. Before long, the concert starts, and as predicted, it is splendid. Babette sits on the edge of her chair, fidgeting with excitement during Strauss's overture to deflate a mouse, and leans back in bliss when the Seattle Opera sings selections from Rossini's La Senorentola. She trembles with joy during the prelude to Wagner's Die Meistertzinger von Nürnberg, and then relaxes, closing her eyes during a quintet from Mozart's Die Zauberflöte. Costume jewelry flashes as her hands clap in exultation when the final notes slowly fade. Afterwards, we walk back to the hotel, Babette still glowing under a rapturous spell. I tell you, Ross, I could die in agony tonight and still consider this evening an absolute success. To experience such delights, we are truly the most lucky of people. Nothing could have made this time more perfect. With a satisfied sigh, she purses her lips, and we stroll together in silence. Upon our return from Yakima the next afternoon, I head downstairs and flip my wall calendar ahead. Soon it will be November 1999. Something doesn't feel right, and I turn back, staring at June. Indeed, my pantry residence has lasted under six months, but already feels like years. I make notes with a permanent marker on several upcoming dates. November 5th, Babette has a medical appointment about the strange welts on her neck. Then just a week later, we'll need a ride to the airport for another mysterious Canadian convent trip. I switch on the old Macintosh computer, begin an essay for school, and then make a brief diary entry. Outside the folding streetcar door, multiple refrigerators hum without let-up. On the designated day, I drive my professor to the hospital for surgery, and hours later, fetch her home. White gauze stretches up beneath her wig and down the neckline of a fuzzy blue sweater. She is groggy from medication, weary-limbed and unsteady as I assist her indoors. Once we reach the stairs, she pushes me away. No, no, Babette mutters, both hands clutching the metal banister. I must do this myself, even if death is my only reward. Step by step, she wrenches herself upwards as I watch anxiously from the bottom. At last she reaches the landing and totters through her doorway. Bed springs squeak as she finally settles down. Before long, deep snores resonate throughout the house. The next morning, I rise early to eat and shower before a 9 a.m. academic writing class. In search of breakfast, I stumble upstairs, eyes still half-crusted shut. Babette is already awake, sitting before the kitchen table. Impatient fingers pick at the bandages around her neck. A bowl of oatmeal lies abandoned, almost congealed in blue and white china. Babette, stop. Are you sure those should come off? Don't ask so many questions, she snaps. 
I keep scissors in the drawer there. This gauze is absolute torture. They turned me into a mummy. Come now, vit vit. That is French. It means take your time. I fumble amidst thumbtacks, screwdrivers, and balled-up rubber bands before finding a pair of blue-handled shears. Tentatively, I begin cutting through the layers, but wince at tape that stretches across an incision from earlobe to shoulder. Her mottled skin is sticky, and my knuckles now gummy from adhesive and antiseptic. I'm pretty sure this last piece should stay. I don't care, she orders. Tear it all away. All right, brace yourself. I take a firm grip on the tape and yank, hard. The material rips free, exposing a deep wound sealed with shiny staples. Bare flesh gleams, puckered and raw. With a satisfied nod, Babette returns to her breakfast. 